Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. And first things first, a happy Mother's Day to all the mums listening. Now, may you be spoilt, pampered, and get more love and gifts than you thought humanly possible. And do we have a great show lined up for you this morning? First up, we'll be speaking with Georgie Buckley, a dietitian who has just completed her PhD at Swinburne Uni. Dr. Buckley now explored disordered eating in current and former athletes. She's passionate about weight-inclusive health, eating disorder prevention, and fighting back against cultures that promote disconnection with one's bodies. We've got loads of questions to throw at her, me in particular, um, and it'll be a bun fight between the panel members to see who gets in first, I'm sure. Dr. Brad McKay is a Sydney GP who you may know from the TV show Catalyst on the ABC, and he also appears regularly on the Today Show. And if you've been anywhere near a bookshop in the last couple of months, you'll also have caught sight of his book, Fake Medicine. We'll be chatting with Brad about evidence-based medicine, medical myths, and how I can get my book published too. Uh, Dr. Alex Umbers completed a PhD in medical research focusing on pregnancy, namely how malaria affects the way babies grow in utero. Following work as a postdoctoral scientist in Papua New Guinea, trying to improve pregnancy outcomes in vulnerable communities. She jumped ship and went back to train as a doctor. Now she's training to be a GP specialising in women's health. We'll be crossing to her live from New Zealand's South Island and crossing our fingers that the trans-Tasman bubble applies to Zoom links as well. And Sundays just wouldn't be Sundays without my co-hosts, <laughs> the effervescent nurse Evie Penn and the mischievous Dr G-Spot. So stick with us and me, Dr Malpractice, for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, G-Spot. Good morning, Dr Mal. And I wanted to give a big shout-out to my mum mm. in Adelaide for Mother's Day. I've actually spoken to your mum. You have, yeah. <laughs> she's, uh, she's still in trauma counselling, um, but, uh, but thanks for, thanks for she, reaching out. She's a lovely lady. She is. <laughs> and nurse Evie Penn, have you had a good Mother's Day so far? Uh, yes, I've had a quick text from my daughter in Sydney, yeah. and um, and I wished all the mothers on our bike ride this morning a happy Mother's Day. Right. But I also want to say it's sometimes it's not a happy Mother's mm. Day, so we need to think about the people, the women that mm. haven't been able to have children, or mm. for whatever reason they've they've had a an unsuccessful time mm -hmm. getting mm -hmm. having a baby. But Virginia Trioli wrote a beautiful piece in the ABC yesterday about we can extend the philosophy of what a mother is. Mm -hmm. So people that care for mm -hmm. other people, that's mothering. So there's a lot of ways pe women can be mothers outside of having conceived and had a baby. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting question because there's people that choose not to have children, mm -hmm. um, but... 
I, I thought that was that struck a chord for me because yeah. I do feel sorry for people. Somebody's mother might recently mm. have died. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole. It's so we want to embrace the whole thing about mothering, mm -hmm. um, but in a in a sensitive way, especially those an inclusive way. An inclu yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Oh, so, so you can be a mother today to us, Doctor Mal. I will be a mother today. Do I get flowers? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. We just get some sour sauce. So, Thanks so much. We're just gonna... Mother Mal. <laughs> mother Mal. I like, the, I like the ring of that. Hey, yeah. um, we've got a huge show today and we better get started. Have we ever? Um, you, do you want to lead off, Dr. G-Spot? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to introduce the audience to almost Dr. Georgie Buckley, who is oh. my favourite dietitian in the world. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for being with us, Georgie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. I know you've been petitioning to be on the show for quite some time. <laughs> I'm just kidding there, audience. Uh, Georgie's doing me a big favour by coming on the show today. Um, many congratulations on your PhD submission. That's a huge achievement. Well done. Thank you. It's all very new. Yay! Happened a few weeks ago. Uh, well, I'm sure it will all go very smoothly from here. So our usual first question, Georgie, uh, what made you become a dietitian in the first place? Hmm. It's such a, it's how long have you got? <laughs> uh, so for me, I think I was a fairly elite junior athlete growing up as a distance runner. And I always had that curiosity and interest in, in food and nutrition and, and how that all worked, I think, as a distance runner and how you could perform and um, help that whole aspect with your body. And, and for me, it was specifically this curiosity and interest relating to disordered eating, I think, is what got me into dietetics. Um, because when I was experiencing that culture of being in that distance running sporting cohort, I found that it wasn't really spoken about that people could have complicated relationships with food. And now looking back on my time as a junior, I can see that I had a really complex relationship with food and it was so normalised. So for me, going into dietetics, I knew I wanted to work in eating disorders and disordered eating in that space and helping athletes and helping people generally to, to heal and create a positive relationship with food. And that also led to my PhD. So it's all tied in quite nicely together. Thank you so much for sharing, Georgie, and I, I love hearing that story every time you tell it. I'm getting uh, the sign from EpiPen. She'd love to ask you a question. Uh, Georgie, what's the topic of your PhD? So I was essentially an eating disorder. So eating disorders are really, really well defined. We know anorexia nervosa, we know bulimia nervosa, we know binge eating disorder, but there's a subclinical state called disordered eating that is really poorly defined and talked about and people often uh, make it complicated and they talk about disordered eating and they mean eating disorders and vice versa. So for me, I found that the culture amongst sport and athletes, that the Disordered eating was really rampant in those spaces. So I wanted to really well define what disordered eating is and really demonstrate how it exists, what it looks like in sporting cultures and also link in former athletes into that as well and just really start to create a bit of a cultural change in those spaces. So I've developed a, a tool which is able to assess both current and former athletes uh, with their state of disordered eating and it's really, I guess, quite 
it's it's a there's been such little research in that area in athletes so far so it's really such a starting point that then we can start to do interventions we can talk about it we can challenge it um, and really start to change the face of what sports sport looks like and what we take for granted georgia you know food um is isn't just about nutrition i'm stating the obvious isn't it there's so much symbolism associated with food and it, it, it acquires a whole lot of different meanings. I know in certain cultures, particularly my family, food is associated with love. And, you know, when my mum dishes out food, if you don't eat it, you're not, you don't love her, you know. So, and it's, it's very, it's a very, very powerful thing. It's like, you know, why aren't you eating? And I'd say, well, I'm not hungry. And she'll say, well, that's no excuse, you know. So there's this, it's not just about nutrition and, and, and putting nutrients into your body. It acquires this whole big thing. What if, what if, what's some of the stuff that you found around that kind of symbolism? Or have you looked at that in particular? Um, I think when we're looking at disordered eating generally, food becomes so much about purely what our body looks like and the type of body composition we have so I think when you look at athlete cultures it comes you know is my body small enough is it muscular enough does it look aesthetically like quote-unquote what an athlete should look like and food becomes this really reductive aspect related purely to that and so I think when we start to challenge disordered eating cultures in sport, and also this is just so applicable to just anyone in their relationship with food, we can start to challenge, well, food is so much more than just what our body looks like. And really when it does become purely what our body looks like, we're not going to have a great time with it. Uh, so, Georgie, you're, you're heading right into my next question. So, thank you for that. What do you think is our fascination with dieting? <clears throat> it's so that's a stupid question. It is. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that, Georgie. I'm, I'm really looking for myself um, to write my next paper. So, please help. You can tell you're a researcher with that kind of uh, curiosity. I'd say. <laughs> Thanks, Georgie. Um, so diet culture is so, it's just everywhere, really. And what diet culture is, is that we, we value certain bodies and, and we relate to food because of the values that we, the bodies that we value. And so it really depends on what kind of cultural setting we're in as to what bodies are valued. So when we're looking at almost this white western narrative we're looking at the thin ideal for women and so the thin ideal then becomes around restrictive eating and taking up less space and and making ourselves smaller and I think that's why we have such a fascination with dieting because it perceptively gives us this message that we'll be able to attain this thin ideal but what we know with diets and what we've known for decades now is they're so ineffective. And the worst thing is, and I think you're going to go, you're going to roll with this, Gemma, is that diets are becoming so creative. We're almost experiencing this new generation of almost like gaslighting diets that exist and they're being sneakier and, you know, they're still having the same like ineffectiveness um, but we're just, we're still just obsessed with having the, this type of body. Um, and so from that, you know, if we were able to just accept our bodies as they are genetically and how they're meant to be with what we want to do with our life and loving food, well, 
that that creates a whole new culture that pushes back against that diet culture. Uh, preach, Georgie. I am loving this. Um, I know we've had a, a fun chat about some of our favourite diets. Care to share any of your stories about diets that you're loving at the moment in your clinical practice? <laughs> um, Noom is a fave at the moment. Um, so Noom is a little bit of the ultimate gaslighter diet at the moment. So it's really tricky because it can... What I'm finding is on social media accounts, particularly your TikTok and your Instagram where your millennials and your Gen Zs um, tend to hang out, that's where they're having a really good uh, influence of being able to target people specifically. And so there's there's a block function on these accounts as well where you can turn them off. And the number of times I've done that on my Instagram accounts and they still find a way to come up. And so I think that's a really, it's an interesting thing. We need to be, have a whole nother level of critical thought to be able to um, know what is a diet and what is not when we've got messages from someone like Noom saying, do you want to heal your relationship with food? And, you know, engaging with that, you go, yeah, this sounds so great. And then if you get two seconds in, you know you know what it is when they're asking you, what is your weight goal, um, you know, in two weeks' time kind of thing. So, yeah, that one's an interesting one. I think it really is uh, very characteristic of, of where diets are going. Georgie, do you think, you know, one of the reasons for our uh, obsession as a society with diets is that weight um, – is one of the, I guess, one of the few things that we can control about our physical bodies, or do you think it's something different to that? Absolutely, there's an aspect of that. Um, I was looking at current and former athletes in COVID, and often you see in athletes particularly when, and and this is just the general population too, when there's aspects of our life that we can't control, Mm. we turn to these almost acute things that we perceptively can mm-hmm. and so food seems to be this thing that we we think and I say this with big inverted commas is like we think we can control food mm-hmm. because you know to be able to restrict the next meal cut out the next mm-hmm. snack whatever it is it seems easy enough but what we actually don't consider is the long-term effect of how food then ends up controlling mm-hmm. us Mm. So I think that's why it seems like an easy fix. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, Georgie, there, I always grapple with this thing about diet and lifestyle. So diet has an implication that you've got a starting point and an end point and you just have to lose that weight and then the diet's over. But isn't it more what – should we change the word diet? Is that – something for, you know, maybe a specific time in your life that you need a diet, but but lifestyle and food should be incorporated in your, you know, your long-term life? Mm. Oh, this is a great question because um, I think a lifestyle change has become almost a synonymous sneaky way of saying a diet for diet companies as well. So there's very little difference often when it's coming from a weight loss company as to whether it's a quote-unquote lifestyle change or a diet. And when, you know, I think when we're looking at 
what actually dieting stands for. It's restrictive practices. It's cutting out aspects of, you know, our relationship with food we haven't even thought of in the short term that might come back to, to you know, kick us in the butt long term. And I think we're, when we're, you know, we're looking at those longer term things, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing either. So when we look at something like eating disorders, they're psychologically mediated conditions that are really, really hard to tackle. And they've often come about from that dieting mindset that just sticks there and is really hard to shift. So something long-term isn't necessarily good. What my alternative to this is, and, and there's lots of different frameworks, lots of research looking at this, is there are um, particularly there's a, there's a movement called Health at Every Size and that really pushes back against diet culture in saying, well, why are we dieting in the first place? Why are we trying to change our bodies? Why don't we accept our bodies as what they are? We're meant to have body diversity and shape, size, you know, is meant to be different for everyone across the spectrum. Why don't we see if we can pursue, if health is what we're wanting to pursue, what are the things that we do and putting weight aside, because weight often complicates actual health. As my heart is singing, Georgie, I have literally never felt the warm and fuzzies as much as listening to you. Uh, so thank you. I suppose our time is quickly running out, but I wanted to ask you, Georgie, what are, what's like maybe um, a memorable patient or someone you've worked with in this space? Mm, memorable patient. I so there's one that really comes to mind for me and I think this really ties eating disorders and something called weight stigma really well together is I worked with this wonderful wonderful woman who was recovering from various different long-term illnesses and I worked with her for maybe six months and I could see her, her relationship with food was just so complicated um and we're working on little things like, you know, just eating regularly, which is often the first step in eating recovery. And that was presenting to be a really big challenge. Um, this woman is a larger woman. So essentially what she told me for her whole life, she had five different doctors at that point in her life. And all of them were telling her, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. And when we really got into the history of what she was going through, she had actually been on a diet since she was eight years old and her, her body just wasn't responding to these restrictive practices, which is just so common for most people. And so what we, what we did rather than doing anything that was, you know, dieting, we just completely did the opposite. And eventually it took, it took months and months and months and months and she actually opened up about having an eating disorder that she'd never been able to explain to anyone else. And I think when we take away that these, you know, how someone presents in terms of their weight and their appearance, when we completely take that off the table, that's when we really get to the crux of what health is. And I, I think that there's so much that we can learn as health professionals. And that's what I, I guess, hope for the future is that health becomes a safe place for people in all kinds of bodies, that they receive appropriate care. Um, irrespective of what their body looks like, especially if there are eating disorders going on and they're not otherwise identified. 
Thank you so much, Georgie, for those important messages. I couldn't agree more. I just wanted to say to our audience, if, um, if eating disorders or disordered eating are something that's concerning you or someone you know, please reach out to the uh, National Butterfly Helpline on 1800 4673. Thank you so much, Georgie. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And coming up on the Zoom, not the Zoom, but the Zoom, is who, Pen? Um, Dr. Brad McKay. So... Or is it Mackay? Mackay. 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 Thank you, Brad. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so, Brad, um, you are, we, look, we, when we, this came up for us to interview you as um, a guest, I thought, terrific, because this, um, Brad's got so much experience as a broadcaster, an interviewer, public commentator on TV, radio, ABC's host of Catalyst and all sorts of media experience, and I thought, well, let's get Brad on, and then we can have some tips from this. <laughs> we're, we're, we're incredibly jealous. Right? I, yeah, I think we I might be around. beyond yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've done more than us, and get paid for it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Brad, we're so excited to have you on the show and to talk about this book called Fake Medicine: Exposing the Wellness Crazies, Cons, and Quacks Costing Us Our Health. Um, so, Brad, just why don't you kick off by saying how you got involved in in this book? Uh, yeah, that's probably a good question. Uh, I suppose being a GP, I've just seen so many patients coming through and they've just been going down really wacky pathways. Like they just have very strange ideas about their health and, and what's required. Um, I think every week I'm, I'm making a list of another supplement that my patients are, are telling me about. I think like last year it was a whole variety of different mushrooms that apparently <laughs> help your intelligence. A bit weird. Um, and... Um, uh, it just sort of like keeps on escalating over time, and we're, we're sort of the uh, we're, we're talking before about um, about being on Instagram and having all sorts of weird and wacky fad diets coming up, um, seeing patients going on yo-yo diets and um, not really getting anywhere and feeling um, really defeated, mm-hmm. which is just horrendous mm-hmm. when we're seeing that with our patients. Uh, and so I, I really wanted to to write a book that um, that wasn't giving all the the answers because science changes all the time, but just uh, to try to give people a bit more of advice about like how to think about their health, how to increase their health literacy and how to, to think about the, the information that's, that's coming through, whatever form it's taking, um, how to, to decide if it's credible or not. And why do you think people need alternative health therapies? What's, what's at the bottom of all of this? Uh, well, it's for a variety of different reasons. I think um, some people just don't trust modern medicine for some reason. Um, other people, they may be going to see their GP or their doctor and they end up like running out of options. Um, and this is sort of like how, how I found with my health as well. Part of part of the book is a, a memoir and, and goes through my own sort of difficulties with health. Um, and I found how difficult it was to try to sort of like nut out some health problems even once I was medically trained. Um, so... Uh, 
like if we were if we're going back to when I was a teenager, I had pain in my back. Um, my GP said, "Oh yes, your pain in your your back is the same as me. I'm 55. You're 15. Um, yeah, it must just be a lumbar disc prolapse, and mm. that's pressing on your nerves. So mm. yeah, just go and see a physio. We'll give you some heat therapy. Oh, that didn't work. Let's send you to an osteopath, and he'll hit you with a stick for six months, and and hopefully things will get better. And so I, I sort of yeah, I just I did what I was told. Um, I got hit by a stick for six months. Um, I had CT scans of the wrong area of my back twice. Um, and it, it wasn't until like a, an osteopath was locoming um, and who said, hey, hey, how about we don't hit you with a stick today? How about we get you back to your GP and get a bone scan done? And so uh, by doing that, we're able to see that my sacrum was lighting up like a Christmas tree, um, that I had an osteoblastoma, so a big bone tumor um, sitting in my sacrum. Um, and every time they were using heat therapy, it was just drawing in more blood, um, creating it, making it swell up, which was hideously painful. And then hitting it with an, an adjusting activator instrument uh, at the osteopath was basically, they, they were finding the most painful spot um, which was a tumor mm. and then hitting it. Mm. Uh, and so uh, so for me as a, as a teenager, like 15, 16 years old, uh, I just did what my parents told me. I did what my, my physicians told me and um, I wasn't getting anywhere. Mm. So uh, like you can, I can sort of see how people may get the wrong diagnosis. They may have something rare, like an osteoblastoma is about one in a million chance of getting it. So lucky me, um, won't win the lotto, but I'll get a freaking osteoblastoma. Uh, and uh, yeah, like these odd rarities uh, end up going into wacky areas because mm. we often don't have those solutions for them in, in westernized medicine, mm. often because we're not seeing the right person or because it's beyond um, the, the sort of like, yeah, um, uh, realms of our, what we're, what we're anticipating for our patient. Uh, uh, so one of the things in your book, which is really well written, and what I loved about it is that you've backed it up with all your um, research and quote and cited the research that you've read and um, looked at my and referred to. Patients laugh at me for my like 187 references at the end of the book. So that, <laughs> uh, no, that gives you a lot of credibility. We, we do note you haven't. I sort of referenced the radiotherapy radio show on Triple R. Yeah, I think I that'll be in my second book. Thank so you. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and you've you've cited some interesting stories, especially ones that are dangerous. So, some of the liver tox toxify, detoxifying treatments ended up with one of the patients that you knew had a, needed a liver transplant. I mean, there are some dangerous things that people can take. The, off the shelf and not really understand um, the side effects or long-term use of them. And I suppose that leads me into something that I think it, all our listeners should appreciate, that if you're taking anything off the counter through, uh, you know, a health food shop you might, or, or wherever you're getting it, you must always tell your GP that you're on it because there can be interactions with um, medicines that you're taking and these concoctions um, but could you could you tell us one of your wackiest ones? I like the mushroom one because, and we, you know, let's do one about eating um, horse poo or something. <laughs> you know, it's just something that's so incredibly ridiculous to me as a scientist and and a health clinician. I have to understand the the background and the research to it. But 
you know, it, can you do, can you share with us something, another story about a wacky diet or a wacky um, oh, herb? God, or... there's, there's plenty. I come across them every week. I suppose one of the more recent ones was a patient um, with erectile dysfunction who was telling me that he was having deer antler tea. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what your research has, has shown you about deer antler tea and, uh, and libido. It's, well, the problem there, it's supposed to be deer, deer antler coffee. That's that was the problem. But you don't, you don't have it in tea bags. It's, it's the coffee. It's you, probably just the coffee that's doing everything, and not the deer out the tea. Do, do, there, there are these weird sort of things that happen. So, like rhino horn, for example, that's been used for erectile dysfunction for years because a rhino horn sort of looks like genitalia for some people. Weird. Uh, and so this is sort of like similar for, for deer antlers as well. It's something that's hard. Hey, maybe if we ground it down and put it into tea, this would be really helpful for everybody. And so people just hit, end up with this musty, disgusting, dirty tea um, mm. with a theory that it's going to be helpful for them. Uh, and they'll take it for a while. They'll find that it doesn't work. Hey, remarkable. Um, and then they'll just forget about it. And then the next person will come along and then spend their money on deer mm. antler tea. Uh, and th this is sort of what we what we also find with traditional Chinese medicine is that it's poorly regulated in Australia. So a lot of studies have been done. They've been looking at the, the genomics, uh, so looking at the genes um, that are within traditional Chinese medicine, toxicology, and also looking for synthetic chemicals as well. And we, we have found that a lot of these traditional Chinese herbs um, that may just come in a powder or a tea um, may contain snow leopard or rainforest tree frogs, or cats or dogs, um, or uh, will contain synthetic ingredients uh, like Viagra. This is put in like from a lab, it's made um, <laughs> in a pharmacy, it's then put into traditional Chinese medicine. And then when it may be helpful, um, then we sort of go, oh my God, this traditional Chinese medicine is amazing, but it's just deceitful. Um, and then there's also like lead um, and all sorts of other heavy metals that, that we've also found in these products. So they can be extremely dangerous. Uh, and I think people are taking their lives in their hands when we're, we are taking this random um, powder from the, from the market in Adelaide uh, and, uh, and drinking it uh, because we have no idea what's in it. Brad, I've been elected to be the devil's advocate here. Um, so, you know, can you... <laughs> Great book, and I'm and I, and I particularly focused on the red wine. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been using the justification of a glass of red wine is good for your ticker for years, but you're telling me it's not that well researched, or it is. Well, or... yeah, like a lot of patients will tell me, uh, like yourself, that they're having their red wine, and that's going to be good for their heart, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's uh, sort of like from the the elixir of life defined in like the 1960s and 70s to say that this is going to be making you youthful and live forever. Um, but a lot of people just justify it to have more red wine. Um, they, they forget that the alcohol that's contained within wine will increase their chance of getting bowel cancer. For women, it increases breast cancer. There's about sort of seven or eight different cancers so far that alcohol itself can be a problem for. And then even if you're having like really concentrated resveratrol tablets, they haven't been shown to do much either. Mm. So I, I like the idea of the resveratrol conference where everybody around the world got together. They all started talking about resveratrol and then they decided that it didn't really work and then they never had another conference. Oh. So this, this, is, this is sort of like the, 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 the idea behind resveratrol. Okay. Um, hasn't yet stopped it from being sold. And, and this is one of the other problems is that once something is on the shelf, once it is being sold, it's really hard to get it off the shelf again. Mm.
Uh, love the book, Dr. Brad. It's Dr. G-Spot here. Um, as you may have guessed from our discussion with Georgie, I'm a bit of a fan of social media trends and I loved your um, influencer chapter in your book. And I think what really stood out to me was the power of personal storytelling to convey information. And at the moment, it seems like sometimes we're getting some misinformation about health through influencers. And I, I liked how you sort of put maybe we should be using that influencer style to get the evidence-based information out there. Care to expand on that? Yeah, so I think previously, like information getting out there has traditionally been done very poorly by medicos and by health professionals, but we are getting a little bit better at it. There is a bit of a lag. Um, so at the moment, if you're going on Instagram, you'll see all sorts of fad diets. You'll see lots of Instagram influencers um, telling you that this particular protein powder worked for them and made their health completely better and that you should try it. Um, and then they fail to often mention that they're going to get a cut from, uh, from you buying it as well. So um, I think having um, uh, sexy videos, which I'm not going to be taking off my top anytime soon, uh, <laughs> if we've got like some, some quick sentences, um, and just sort of like getting to the point. And I think that's what I, what I put in my book as well in, in Fake Medicine. It's just like having some snappy answers, um, getting to the point, getting to the crux of things rather than just like you're dancing around the topic. Um, I, I think it's really uh, helpful to, to like attack things head on. Um, and we sometimes do need to do with our patients as well. So um, hopefully we'll see a few more Instagram influencers who are um, snappy, um, funny, um, and getting into that space <laughs> where often it's impressionable youth who are, who are taking their, their guidance. So, um, I'm already well on the way there, space. Brad. I'm, I'm <laughs> such an influencer, uh, as Georgie will attest. No, I'm just kidding. I'm heading over to EpiPen. Um, uh, uh, Brad, I have a real problem with some of the books that have been written, like Belle Gibson's book, or no, she and fundraising, and Lance Armstrong's book. And I, I can remember people, doctors sharing Lance Armstrong's book to patients saying what you can get through and giving them some, um, you know, hope and energy and resilience to manage. and blood doping, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, and then he's just, he's a fraud and, and like Bill and I, and people must be deeply disappointed with these people that get their names out and stories out. And it's just a hoax. It's, I just, uh, it breaks my heart, especially when we've, you know, trying to support patients and they read these books and all these funny things that you can take can stop your cervical cancer. And, you know, you mentioned yeah. Sarah in your book and, but this, this is one of the things that I find with, with doctors is that if somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm, I'm having my deer antler tea or I'm, I'm having my turmeric, we'll often just sort of like nod and smile and go, oh, that's really nice. And we'll move on and try to move back to evidence-based medicine. But a lot of us don't know what, what turmeric is all about. We don't know like the evidence behind it because it hasn't proven it's not in the medical journals that we're reading. It's in this whole other different world of fantasy. And so uh, we, we really need to be knowing what isn't working as well as what is working uh, as far as the, the health profession is concerned. Uh, and so when, when you have people that are selling a biocharger, uh, we sort of go, oh, well, that sounds really lovely. But we a lot of people don't know that a biocharger won't really cure your COVID uh, and that it's basically a bunch of fluorescent lights that are going to be giving you a, a different um, a frequency of, of light coming through. Uh, but yeah, it's not going to be altering your DNA or, or enabling you to, to fight off an infection. Um, 
Um, so that was uh, that was being sold by our good friend Pete Evans for a while until the TGA slept uh, slept him down for that. Brett, so uh, uh, yeah, we do need to be speaking out. Brad, uh, you'd you'd imagine that a lot of the things that you talk about in in the book and again, great book, is that they, they would appear on a spectrum. Like there are some things for which there is just no evidence and they're positively dangerous. There are some things which, yeah, there may be a bit of evidence. And, yeah. um, and there are some things in, in you know, clinical medicine for which we've got lots of evidence, you know, penicillin for pneumonia. Do you think there may be some things and I'm, that just because there is an absence of evidence doesn't mean that there's an absence of proof? You know, that, you know, let's take turmeric, which, you know, which stains my countertops and it's really hard to get out, um, you know, because I've, tr- I've tried a bit of turmeric. Uh, didn't, didn't work. <laughs> it made my rice taste better, but, you know, my joints still hurt. You know, do, do you think maybe we just haven't researched some of these areas enough and eventually we may find that they actually work? Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. Like, there's there's ongoing research all the time. If we're talking about turmeric, then um, yeah, it's a great spice. It can make your your meal taste really fresh and, and stay on your bench top. That's great. Um, but the active ingredient that's meant to be the the active ingredient is curcumin, which is about five percent of turmeric. Um, and then if you're actually having curcumin, your body doesn't absorb it very well. So um, if you do absorb some of it, it only stays in your system for a few hours. Um, most of the time, it just sits in your gut, and then um, it can give you abdominal pains and diarrhea so mm-hmm. that's where i was wondering if that was what was standing your bench <laughs> uh, and so like you'd, you'd need to be taking it multiple times over the day but then even when we're doing studies we're not finding that it's very mm-hmm. beneficial down mm-hmm. the track we might find that there's a really highly absorbent um turmeric uh, a form of that um that could be really beneficial for osteoarthritis and that would be amazing but for the moment the evidence isn't there uh, and so if we're selling it to everybody and um and people are making millions of dollars from selling turmeric around the world, um, then that that is a problem because that is being deceitful. Mm. Brad, fantastic talking to you. We could, we could speak to you for like hours about uh, the book. The book's name is Fake Medicine by Dr. Brad Mackay. Those vowels <laughs> always get me. Those yes. vowels oh, always get me. Sorry. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And joining us is Pen. Dr. Alex Umbers. Yay! So, uh, <laughs> um, so, and she had her son on the show as well, the youngest um, guest we've had, Solomon, who was, who's seven months old. Um, anyway, Alex, it's just terrific to have you on our show and you're going to speak with us about this fabulous podcast um, called Pregnancy Uncut and you're a GP and you've done this with an obstetrician, Dr Cara Thompson, and it's fabulous. It's really, really great and having had two children, two babies and two Caesars, and difficult pregnancy, the first one, and some postnatal depression. And I wish your this podcast was available when I was um, a young mum and doing all of this. Um, and uh, I, I just want to say how I got your podcast. So I just went to my podcast app and downloaded Pregnancy Uncut. Alex, please take it away. 
Thanks, uh, EpiPen. It's a pleasure to be here. Calling in from New Zealand, I'm actually spending my first um, Mother's Day with my own son and my mum in New Zealand. Mm. So it's a really special day to be chatting about all things motherhood and pregnancy. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, um, you know, as a doctor, we often, you know, we're especially working in women's health, are taking care of women who are experiencing pregnancies that don't go to plan. And um, there's a lot of emotional stuff that comes with that. There's, despite reading all the facts about pregnancy complications and the postnatal period and textbooks, there's so much of it that isn't written down and our new podcast is really dedicated to opening up some of those conversations for healthcare professionals to be aware of what these complicated pregnancies look like when people go home from the hospital and and from a patient perspective actually having had complicated pregnancies myself um, you know these are the stories we wish we had heard definitely um, so would you like to talk about um, how you've been able to help people? Um, do you? So, for example, I think you've one of your shows is uh, about stillbirth, um, and the, yes, yes. Do you, would you like to speak about that one, that program? Yeah. So we actually only launched two weeks ago, <laughs> so um, hopefully the word is getting out there. We um, probably don't have the media strategy backing of Brad, who was on earlier. <laughs> We're quite a, a modest organisation, um, just a passion project at this stage, doing it all in our spare time with my colleague Cara who's actually got three of her own children and is working as an obstetrician today she's not listening in because she's just scrubbed for a Caesar but yes uh, in terms of the topics we've covered so far so episode one I talk about my own experience with recurrent miscarriage We've also spoken to a woman who had a really intense birth trauma experience and developed um, PTSD afterwards and her journey taking more than a year to sort of reach out for help and, and start to recover from that. I've also spoken to a very brave woman, Candice, who sadly lost her baby at 11 days old to a rare viral infection. And then, yeah, we're starting to talk about more common things such as postnatal depression and anxiety. And we've got a couple of episodes on stillbirth and um, ectopic pregnancy coming up. And are you reaching out to women to um, tell their stories and then you would include them in the series? Absolutely. So um, even in the first week, we had a number of emails and people reach out to us saying, I love this project. I've been looking for something like this. You know, when I went through my complications, here is my story. I want to talk about it. Um, do you know of the study in the BMJ, so the British Medical Journal, about debriefing women after traumatic births? Do you know of that study? I've heard people reference it, but I, I wouldn't be able to say specific things on it myself. Yeah, so um, I was involved in a project um, in the Centre for the Study of Mothers and Children's um, Health, and they looked at... Um, difficult births and the midwife would go and debrief with the women sort of shortly after that terrible time that they've had and that sometimes and then they revisited them six months later and some of them some of the outcomes were that they did a little bit of more they did more trauma they flared up the this the story for them so people recovering from these sorts of episodes um uh, you know have had that experience and 
it was a very interesting finding that they were were surprised that did come up. And do, do you yeah do you want would you like to comment about that? Yeah, look, I, I won't comment about the specific study, um, but what I would say is. I know from my own clinical experience, you can have two different women going through the same birth. One will experience it as the most amazing thing ever and the other may experience it as traumatic. And, and it really seems to be that we're unearthing a trend towards trauma being defined by the, the person who is experienced, not by exactly what happened. And I think uh, probably opening a can of worms here, but I think the real drive for women to want to have home births or, you know, in a, a birthing environment away from a hospital is because they want to feel safe, they want to feel hurt, they want to minimise trauma. Um, and I, I think, you know, I have my baby in a hospital, so that, that's my personal preference um, from a safety perspective. But I think there is probably a space for us as healthcare professionals to listen to these stories and and try and incorporate that into helping women feel they can give birth safely. Um, and Alex, why do you use the word woman instead of women? Is there is there a new way of um, being respectful to women by calling them women? I think that's my New Zealand accent. Oh. <laughs> People say oh, that all fantastic. the time. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But also in terms of language, um, really important. We're starting to talk about um, the birthing parent, not just women. Yes, and having um, Dr Mal in the studio with us because he is a father and I think he went through most of the delivery more than his wife and he needed more drugs than she did. Um, you know, it's the birthing parent is, is you do share it. I mean, men burst into tears, um, you know, or faint or Rob, what did you, what happened to you, Rob? You That's, ran out screaming. So, so much for confidentiality, <laughs> Penny. Uh, not a, um, no, I, I think they're, uh, you know, it is it, obviously my partner went through far more um, uh, pain and and trauma than I went through, but it's still pretty. I, I I found it very 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 hard to watch her in so much pain. It was really quite a. Um, it was a very uncomfortable. Again, I'm the male watching my my partner get first, but I just found it so hard to watch. You know, and you know we talk about it often and, and she will have forgotten some bits of it but I, I you know there are some bits that that I just that I just haven't forgotten about you know just you know that went on for hours and hours and hours so of course it's a long time but um you know I just you know and, I, and because I'm a, a doctor you know when the when the the nurses came in they looked at the CT the little ECG of the baby I was like I was fixed to that and I couldn't take my eyes off it and you know you can just and eventually I just took off my glasses because I just want to see stuff so you know, there's that thing about being a doctor and about being a male for me. I've, I found it really, really tough. Do, do you get many um, dads sort of having that kind of experience at all, Alex? Or am I, Robin Crusoe here? Look, I think there's, I've seen a vast spectrum uh, where I work of, of very supportive partners and partners that you um, perhaps might give a few um, suggestions of how they could be more supportive. <laughs> but it is a hard job and it's a job that none of us are really trained in as a, as a birthing support partner. And extending from the birth experience, which is, you know, so intense um, for everyone involved, 
um, there is a real space, I think, to create a conversation around pregnancies that don't go to plan or births mm. that don't go to plan because there is a ripple effect, not just for the birthing parent, but the partner and and the family and other children when things don't go to plan so we would love to hear from some birth support parents um, to share their stories because I think um, there would be some dads whose insights into going through something unexpected would be really valuable for other dads or parents. Mm. I think you'll be hearing from Dr Malpractice soon there Alex uh, with his story. Um, I uh, congratulations on the podcast. I think it's fantastic and so necessary. I suppose in my clinical practice, what I see is that there are these myths around pregnancy and birthing being the most awesome experience of your life. And I'm wondering if we are setting women up to be disappointed mm. when these things don't happen. I'm so glad you raised that. I think that, and you know, we've talked a bit about the influences today in social media and the role of doing that responsibility. Responsibility. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it is the most natural time, and usually people are young, fit, and healthy. Um, we don't wish anything to go wrong, and we don't want to over medicalize the birth process too. But the reality is things do go wrong and we need to be able to talk to them. We need to be able to destigmatize them so that people don't feel isolated and alone when they're going through it. We need to be able to have these conversations and, and to not create a sense of failure for women when they end up having a Caesar, for example, when they're really hoping for a natural delivery. Um, and don't you feel that's a really good thing for a GP? So I don't think I've ever visited a GP so many times as when I had a baby because you worry about little coughs and rashes and this is where the GPs are just absolutely so supportive and integral with helping women survive and get through deliveries, vaginal, caesarean. You know, there's so many things that can, you know, upset the apple cart when you've gone through this experience and psychological, not only physical. So, Brad, here's, here's, um, here's a heads up for the GPs that you are representing too. Yeah, and, think, and Alex, so. yeah, being one as well. And if, um, where are you practicing, Alex? So I'm actually on maternity leave and I'm going back to do my advanced obstetric training next to be a specialist in women's health as a GP. Lovely. Alex, can you, I mean, you've worked in other cultures. Can you tell us some of the, the positive things that you picked up from working in those cultures with regards to childbirth and, and the peri-birth experience? Yeah, so um, I have worked in Papua New Guinea, but more as a medical researcher around maternal child health. Yeah. I think uh, when I look back at you know, the healthcare system there, which is struggling now compared to ours, we are we really are in the lucky country. Um, we do have good supports for people to reach out to if they have things that don't go to plan or some challenges. I think it really, it, and also just the resilience of mothers in general. I think they're amazing people when they're strong and soft at the same time. And um, yeah, lots and lots of appreciation for mums doing what they do. We don't always get an instruction booklet and we, no, we fumble don't. our way through it. So we don't. Um, kudos to all the mums out there. Yeah, and especially absolutely. My mom. Absolutely. And Alex, how would people contact you if they'd like to um, share their story? 
Oh, yes, thank you. Um, so you can catch us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We have a website, pregnancyuncut.com, or you can email us on pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or find us on Insta. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing such a fabulous job. I wish you were around when 27 years ago when I was going through this. Um, anyway, um, thanks, Alex. And I'm going to wrap up for everybody. So Dr. Malpractice, who's always up to hijinks behind the, the panel. Wonderful Dr. G Spot, who always asks lovely questions. And and the guests, I guess, nearly Dr. Georgie and Dr. Brad Mackay. Thank you so much for joining us on Triple R this morning. 102.7 FM. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.